Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. This week, I sit down with David Larley, a pastor by day and a barbecue professional by night. His globetrotting story is next. Hey, Calvin Coolidge is such an underrated U.S. president. And while I hope Americans will come to appreciate him more, I also hope they'll come to appreciate the American Pride Roasters coffee blend named in his honor. APRCoffee.com has a special going on right now. If you buy the Silent Cow three-pound box, you're going to get it at the sale price of $40 right now. And if you type in just three simple letters in the promo code box, ATM stands for at the mic, ATM, you're going to get 10% off of that sale price. So I hope you'll head over to APRCoffee.com, try the Coolidge blend. It's got the light and the dark roasted beans, which give it that nuanced, smooth attribute. It's got the uh, boldness as well. It is literally the perfect coffee. And when you do try it, just know that you're drinking it in honor of a champion hide-and-seek player. Yeah, I'm serious. Coolidge used to buzz the guards to come into his office, and then he hid under his desk out of sight. (laughs) I'm telling you, man, Calvin Coolidge was hilarious, in addition to being a great leader. Head over to aprcoffee.com. Use promo code ATM for 10% off and enjoy. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. David Larley is my guest on this week's edition of At The Mic. He tells us how a conversation over lunch changed his life forever, how he, a Canadian, ended up in Dallas, Texas via Great Britain. I just enjoyed really getting to know him. He sat down with me. We talked about that. We talked about curling, of course, and about barbecue on this edition of At The Mic. Joined here in studio today by Pastor David Larley. That's right. Uh, Okay, and we just met five minutes ago. We go way back. Pastor Larley... We know him through a mutual friend, someone who uh, used to work here at The Blaze, well, Mercury One. And, I mean, it's a pleasure meeting you just just through the emails and the texts and, and just the, the last five minutes. This is going to be a fun conversation, man. I hope so. And if it's not, then... Well, you know, there's something else we can do. Then our apologies to the audience. Yeah, wh- what's that? Some barbecue or something? Yeah, you name it. Yeah, we street race down the Riverside oh. Drive or <laughs> you, you call it, whatever you'd like to do. Wow. I'm in a rental car right now. I'm not racing a uh, with a Chevy Equinox. Oh, golly. <laughs> no, you're not. So you're from Canada. I am. So New Brunswick? That's it. Wait a minute. Is New Brunswick... I should have looked this up. Is that the province that has like uh, like 30 minutes... Like the time zone is all weird on one end of no, it? No, that's Newfoundland. Okay, I yeah, mean, because yeah, yeah. they're so similar, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm sort sure of. you appreciate that. <laughs> right, no, what is that? New Brunswick's next to the state of Maine, and so uh, any preconceived idea you have about Maine's probably right. And uh, New Brunswick, <laughs> you know, where we grew up was on the northern tip of the province. So mm. I grew up literally seeing the ocean and the mountains every day. It's either the beginning or the end of the Appalachian Trail, depending on your perspective. <laughs> so I'm going to show my complete ignorance here. Somewhere up there, Leif Erikson landed. That wasn't anywhere near where you grew up, right? I don't think so. That might have been Nova Scotia. There yeah, I go probably. doing it again. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, no. Uh, people drive through New Brunswick to get to Nova Scotia, usually. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I know it's a, a long and, and winding road to get you to the U.S., so let's just start with your childhood there in Canada uh, your mom, by the way, pretty high profile, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Tell us about her. Yeah, so um, mom, um, when I was young, golly, I think I, I should have looked up the dates, but 
still in elementary school. Uh, my mom uh, trained as a lawyer, uh, as my dad, and they were looking for a woman who was bilingual, spoke English and French, to appoint to the federal court. And there she was. So at a young age, um, my young age, and I guess her young age as well. Um, she was already in law, right? They didn't just right. randomly pick no, somebody no, no. that could speak yeah, to She'd done law school and she'd been <laughs> articling for someone. And actually, it joined briefly my dad's law firm. Okay. He had his own practice at the time. And then, yeah, was appointed to the, in Canada, the Court of Queen's Bench family that's, division. That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It was for us because it changed everything. Because you said that the equivalent of like a state Supreme Court here. That's right. Eventually, right. that's where she ended up. Yeah. So, you know, we had the talk where she said, I, I can't be fired. It takes a joint act between the House and the Senate to remove me from uh, my position. <laughs> Unless you bring embarrassment to the family. So, you know, that was kind of, you know, it's the thing growing up with parents in the legal profession, we were generally caught before we thought of doing something wrong. So <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Yeah. That is, <laughs> oh, the pressure, right? Yeah. But, you know, it was, uh, it was amazing because it meant all of a sudden that uh, mom and dad were able to give us opportunities that others wouldn't have. Mm. So, Okay. Yeah. Because you have two younger sisters. Yep, that's and, right. And they had to kind of be on their best behavior growing up as well, huh? They did a <laughs> um, little bit. And um, although they, I don't think they were ever tempted as much as I was to act out. So that's good. I see. Because, you know, a lot of times I'll have guests over here in that chair talking about their siblings. And a lot of times they're in the same town or they're spread out over the country your sisters are all over the world. You guys are really spread out. Yeah. Anne, who's um, three years younger than I am, she is currently in Frankfurt, Germany. Wow. And she works in the opera field. As How's that a, doing with COVID? You know what? Um, they, it's amazing how COVID has led everyone to innovate. And so she is, uh, the technical term is repetiteur. And I don't know if she likes it, but I call her the diva coach. In that now all the opera singers she works with are amazing, um, but she gets the singers ready for opening night. So she's the pianist. She's fluent in every language they sing in, wow. and she just gets them ready to perform. So when opening night starts, her job's almost done. That sounds like fun, though. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then that's Anne. Louise? Louise is five years younger. Okay. And um, she... Uh, again, studied languages and did music performance. Louise did languages in, in her undergrad. And uh, then she ended up working for a while for the Canadian Prime Minister, Stephen Harper. Yeah. You know. We, yeah. Okay. So wait a minute. So Anne speaks all the languages of the people that come through the opera house. Like it. Well, she, she reads or sings in Italian, sure. German, okay. French. Yeah. Louise has studied language. Yeah. And she knows all these different, uh, your mom is bilingual. Yeah. Right? Please tell me, I mean, do you just know the English or do you have other stuff up your <laughs> sleeve? Because I mean, the bar is set high here. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, dad's also bilingual. I, wow. and I learned to actually swear in French yes. before I did in English. Oh, see now that's a, that's an applied skill that I would love to have. I only have a couple of those Spanish words up my sleeve, but, uh, well, well and you know, it's funny cause, um, <laughs> given what I do now, yeah. <laughs> My, you don't uh, get an opportunity to really use them too much as a pastor, huh? Well, people don't speak French that much down here, so I'm pretty good. <laughs> yeah, That's good stuff, man. 
So hold on a second. So you speak English and you can say bad words in French? Is that where we're at? Yeah, well, you know, I'm fluent in French. Yeah. Oh, you got to teach me some of these bad words in French. I need to mix them in later. Um, you ended up going to college up there. Yeah. But take us through that path of, because there were some very interesting experiences, life-changing experiences along the way. Yeah. So take us through, you know, kind of your, your college uh uh, experience and how you eventually ended up in the U.S. So uh, it's I went to a small liberal arts college in New Brunswick, Mount Allison University. You know, I think the town population of the town Sackville had when school was in had five thousand people, and when school was out it was like twenty three hundred. So small, like really small. Uh huh. And um, wait, wait, hold on. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you're from Canada. Yeah. And at any point in your lifetime leading up to this. Uh, were you playing organized hockey anywhere? You know, I didn't. Okay. Wow. You're the one person that, that made yeah. it out of there without playing hockey. Continue. I'm sorry. I had yeah, to ask. That's fine. I love it. You know, <laughs> Curling? Are you uh, into curling? I curled a little bit, but okay. I wasn't very good. I kept trying to, you know, I have always throw those rocks. Always wanted to go curl. I love hey. watching it every four years during the Olympics. Let's go sometime. It's you we and can me. set it up. Yeah, let's go down to the Dallas. There's a... There's a must be a Dallas curling there is, club. There are. And, yeah. and they have open houses that, you know, because curling ebb and flow, the popularity, okay? And so every year, I think, every time the Olympics comes on, I, I, I should probably just put this reminder on my phone two years out. When it's at its least popularity, that's when I need to go to these places. And I keep forgetting, so we're going, okay? It's cool. kind of like axe throwing. I, you, you, know, don't, okay, it, you don't know my history of injuring <laughs> myself and nearly lopping off digits. So I don't think I need to no, be doing right. that. Well, yeah, but do you right. do some axe throwing too? No, not yet, but I'd like to. Okay, I'm not going with you on that one. But we will. I'm not kidding. We will go curling, okay? All right, I got it. All right, it. cool. I'm sorry. So back to college in uh, Canada. Yeah, yeah, no. So uh, do I start off in science thinking I'd be a doctor? And the mistake I made is that uh, we had to take calculus. And the first week of calculus, the oh. prof gets up and says, oh. some of you think this is just numbers. And I was like, I looked at my textbooks. Have I missed something? And he said... <laughs> This isn't just numbers. This is, there's a philosophy. It's its own language. And the mistake I made is I didn't drop it. And so <laughs> uh, I had a spectacular failing in uh, first year science and needed to switch out, uh, change degrees. And um, so I, I, moved, I pivoted to arts and did history just because okay. I could remember stories. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Did you at the time uh, have any thought as to what you might do with a history degree? Yeah, I did. Um, I wanted to be um, Jack Ryan from Tom Clancy. Tom Clancy. You know, oh. I thought, you know, <laughs> historians, they absorb, they look at uh, events with objectivity, and uh, I thought I could be a case analyst. You for, thought you were going to work for the CIA. Yeah, or, you know, CSIS, but CIA probably pays better, so, yeah. Huh. Okay, so you're going to class, you're yeah. majoring in history, and you're thinking in the back of your mind, I'm going to be a spy. Yeah, well, or yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna work in national security. That's it. Yeah, that's right. Do uh, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, so what happened? What happened was is my grand my father's parents died, and um, yeah, I knew about my grandfather had been in World War II, but I didn't really know a lot of what he did. Mm-hmm. I, you know, like a lot of vets, find it, found it hard to talk about. Yeah. And I remember one summer when I was just switched to history, kind of floundering, what I was going to do? And we found these audio cassettes that I'd never seen before. I'm sure my dad and his family knew all about it. 
And I started to listen to them. And what happened was in 78, the year I was born, my grandfather was in a car accident and broke virtually every bone in his body. Mm. So he's uh, recovering and he starts to record his memoirs about how he was a prisoner of war. He was a, a straight air gunner and a Halifax bomber shot down over Berlin. He gets put in this prisoner of war camp made famous by The Great Escape with Steve McQueen. Right. And he talks about how he was involved in The Great Escape, at digging tunnels, uh, just doing everything they could to try to escape. And, wow. And so it was kind of like, it was, it was really significant to me, two reasons. One is you, I suddenly realized, oh, wow, there's a bigger story that I'm a part of. And the second thing is, is that I was... If you're studying history and you come across like a treasure chest of primary documents, like it was just, um, it was a home run as it were. And um, I took them to one of my professors, my undergrad, and he said, well, you got to write about this for my class. And so I did. And without telling me, um, he sent it off to get published. Oh, wow. And so that meant that all of a sudden um, my trajectory kind of changed and I think, you know, like most parents, I'm sure you're the same. We kind of think that if our kids follow our example to a certain degree, do what we do, it'd be great. And so I think mom and dad always want me to do law. But this meant all of a sudden um, there was something else I could do. So I finished my undergrad in history, then found a university outside of Toronto that was going to pay me to do a master's in Yes, please. In this. And, you know, I kind of already had a head start. So that's I moved to Toronto or West London, Ontario, outside of Toronto mm -hmm. and um, tried being a grad student for a while. And I got my degree in a year. And that's when I think mom and dad were wondering what I was doing. And, uh, you know, asked their friend, the bishop, to take me to lunch to sort me out. You know, give me the uh, life changing talk, as it were. <laughs> and he said something to you at that lunch, correct? That really yeah. changed your life forever. No question about it. That's right. And I wasn't, you know, I've apologized since because it wasn't very kind, but I'd become really disillusioned uh, by the church or just hadn't been prepared for maybe life as I thought. So anyway, he asked me over lunch, we're at the Lord Beaverbrook Hotel, which is in the provincial capital. It's where the you know, it's where all the politicians have their okay. lunches. So, and he's there in his pink shirt and all his, you know, big cross and all that stuff. And we start talking and he asks me, what do you think of the state of the church in New Brunswick, the Anglican church, you know, the Episcopal church that we're here in the U S mm -hmm. and, um, for the first time that I can remember, I told someone in authority what I thought. Not what I thought they wanted to hear. Right. And I was surprised by what came out. And I, I, um, I lead, led with, I'm not sure how you sleep at night. You're closing churches. You need to be opening them. I'm in my tw early 20s. I go to church for an hour, and it doesn't really have any bearing on the rest of my week. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of ranted a bit. And uh, I put, you know, I stopped. I looked at my club sandwich, and I thought, well, this is going to be interesting when... <laughs> mom and dad hear about this and I picked up my club <laughs> sandwich and he said have you ever thought about training for the ministry and everything seemed to speed up and slow down and this crazy thought went through my head that I'd never entertained before which was study theology in Oxford England now like most Canadians a trip to England you know it's just you know it's kind of what you do right when you're in your college years <laughs> And so I put my sandwich down and I said, Bishop, funny you should mention that. I've been considering studying theology in Oxford, England. 
He was a bit surprised. Wow. I was even more surprised. I was like, where did that come from? <laughs> and he said, well, if you studied in Toronto, we'd be able to help pay for it. But if you go to England, it's on your own dime. And I, and again, I said, well, Bishop, I'm new to this God stuff, but um, if money's the only hindrance, that can't be a big hindrance to God. So let's try, you know, let's see if we can do the Oxford thing. Very cool. So you do eventually get over there. Yeah. And I, it, it was amazing. I got in, got accepted. I, um, it was wild. It was, I worked three jobs that summer, saved, mm. sold what I could. And then, um, I was packing my bags and nine 11 happened, mm. which, you know, um, just, it was crazy time, but I was on the first flight over in over to England after, you know, when the flights resumed. And it was the best flight ever. I think it was me and 12 air marshals. <laughs> I, I had like the whole section to myself. Yeah. And uh, the air flight attendants were bored and, you know, so it was, it was a great time. But it meant that all the money I'd saved turned to nothing because the, you know, obviously the uh, stock market went wild. The, the uh, Canadian currency took a hit against the British pound. And so I had enough for three months and I kind of got there and I was, I prayed the, uh, my favorite prayer, the Jerry Maguire prayer, which is uh, Lord, you got to show me the money if you want me to stay here. I had a feeling that's where the Jerry Maguire prayer was going to go. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I got a student loan and right. then this amazing charity in the UK. Um, I wrote to 18, 15 of them and 14 flat out rejected. And the, the last one said, yeah, we think this is God and we'll pay half. All right. Yeah, so. How long were you over there then? Three years. Three years. And that's where you met your wife, Rachel. That's right. Is she from Britain? Or? She is. Okay. She grew up in just outside of the city of Exeter. Okay. So southwest, yeah. All right. And you guys met? It was the summer ball. And I see her and, I, you know, I had love at first sight. And she had quite the opposite. Um, oh, no. So that, uh, okay. So, so, you know, I just had to. The, I be... danced her into a corner. It's kind of like the scene from The Office. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, my dance moves in my mind were going to be stellar, but they were anything but. But I get her into the corner, and I ask her for a phone number at the end of the evening, and Rachel says, I, I, don't, I don't know it. And I thought, oh, she must be lying. <laughs> so I asked her friend for her phone number, and uh, bless her, uh, she gave me her phone number, and I called her the next day. We took her out for coffee. Oh, my. Forgot my wallet, so she had to pay for coffee. And at the end, I said, oh, by the way, do you have Rachel's phone number? Oh, my God. Yeah, it was a total. Against all odds, man. I got it. And then her group of friends and my group of friends became one big group. And so we ended up, you know, the one of the great things about Oxford is that there are something like 150 excellent pubs within a two mile radius. All right. We spent a lot of time just hanging out and it was, it was great. And eventually a, a friend of mine says, it was either gonna be a restraining order or marriage. So here we are. <laughs> I was thinking something along those lines when you said you backed her into a corner and I'm thinking, okay, this could go one of two ways. It yeah. looks like <laughs> No, no, it went really well. So how did y'all end up in Dallas then? So we, after getting married, we moved to London. I worked for a church in the inner city in Battersea, which is just south of South Kensington. And it was one of those areas that when we moved in was on the edge of turning from blue collar to upper middle class. Okay. And uh, we were there for nine years. It was just a, it was an incredible time. 
And then we felt at the end of that it was time. We'd had two boys, Ethan and Thomas. And you're up to three boys We're now. up to three, yeah. So we've got two Brits, British Canadians, and one <laughs> Texan. Yeah, how do you get, how do two foreigners get green-lighted to come move to America? How does that work? You know, well, it's all, so we got invited, headhunted or recruited to come work for a church here in Dallas. Okay. And so started the immigration process, got the visa work done, then applied for green cards. And then uh, while we're here, you know, which is an inc- <laughs> it's it's <laughs> wild trying to immigrate to this country. Right. I mean, we love it here, and you know, but within, it's not easy, huh? No, and I think the thing that I didn't wasn't prepared for. I mean, I, I'm good at filling in forms, but I think we had two years where there was just a steep learning curve, where you're just having to learn new things. Uh, just about how it works here. And there wasn't, maybe we didn't access a roadmap that was there for us. I don't know. But mm. anyway, uh, it worked because I tell you, after being si- here f- for six months in Dallas, I overheard Rachel say to her mother, who's still in England, I don't know why we would ever leave. Mm. I mean, it's just, yeah, Dallas is definitely our home. So how long of a process was it for you all to, to, I guess, get a green card, right? Yeah, so we first came in on a religious workers visa, and uh, that happened. The job was meant to start July first, um, but we didn't get here till just after Thanksgiving that year. Okay. So it just took a while. Now, are y'all citizens now? No, we're still You're waiting through. We've that? got our green cards, and then I think we've got a couple of years before we can apply for a citizenship. All right. Well, good luck. Let me know if you need help. I don't know that I would have a pool with I'm anybody not, whatsoever, but uh, you could be my character. Reference. I was gonna say, can I? Do yeah. they have those character references? Oh, yeah, Were I'm they, sure. Okay, cool. I might just add one in for bonus. All right, yeah. And Rachel, because uh, uh, I ask a question, what's in your Amazon cart right now? And uh, <laughs> I mean, is there an update? Is there is there anything in there that? Because uh, you say there's always art supplies in there because yeah. she has a business, RachelLarleyCreates.com. Yeah, so Rachel is a school teacher part-time and has her own art business on the side. Okay. And uh, the term is she's a textile artist. So she does like watercolor and painting and then will sew stitching into it. That and, sounds uh, pretty so, intense. You know, she's amazing. She's doing this project with uh, for Mother's Day, which is this Sunday, in case you've forgotten. By the time this podcast posts, it'll be a reminder for the next Mother's Day. That's right. Um, <laughs> where she is making these Mother's Day cards to raise money for um, a local charity we love called the Dignity Project, okay. which partners with Exodus Ministries, which takes women who are coming out of prison, gives them a job, and they work through well-grounded coffee over in East Dallas, trains them to be baristas, reunites them with their children, and just puts a network around them so that they just get a fresh start. I mean, That's and so cool. she's so our our we've got this massive dining room table, and it's just become this production for she's making these cards. And oh wow! So at the moment we've got gold leaf paint in the Amazon cart <laughs> and um, something else I can't remember. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. Very good. So you're a Canadian. Yep. Married a Brit. Y'all live in Dallas, Texas. How did you end up getting into Texas barbecue as a, I guess as a hobby is what you would call it or? You know, it started, it started as a hobby. And as you know, Keith, with your, your wife being in ministry, when you're in pastoral work, nothing ever resolves, right? <laughs> 
you're kind of going from one thing to the next. And um, I, a, a mentor of mine a long time ago said, you need a hobby that'll just ground you and help you connect to the real world around what you do. Oh, and cool. so I was on this drive in uh, rural Alberta, Oh, Which is I'm like an the Edmonton prairies. Oilers fan. All right, so oh, well done. It. Yeah, okay. You know, I still remember clearly what I was doing when they announced that Wayne Gretzky was leaving the Oilers. I do too. I wasn't even an Oilers fan at the time. It was twelve thirteen at lunch. I was about to chow down a craft dinner, and the world stopped. <laughs> yeah, man. But no what kidding. a guy! He's done so much for for hockey. It's just uh, you know he's got his own brand of bourbon now. Wait a minute! How did I miss this train? Or maybe what? it's whiskey. I don't know. Scotch. Yeah, he I does. I gotta find this. I think it's called Ninety Nine. Oh well, okay. Obviously, it should be. you fly into uh, awesome. fly into the airport there in uh, in Edmonton. You'll see it. It's everywhere. Which before COVID, I had planned to. Me and my son were going to go up for a hockey game, and then the world oh. stopped again. But uh, I, I just uh, he is a class act. Wayne Gretzky telling another player, Connor McDavid, that you're going to be better than me. I mean, that's that's humility. That's pretty awesome. And so far, it's looking pretty good. And it's so generous, too, which, you, you know, we don't find often in celebrity culture. Yeah. So, so I'm on this drive, and we're driving through southern Alberta, okay. and I don't think we're ever going to get there. Like, it's just long, and it's like <laughs> hours. And I'm driving with this friend of mine, Daniel Bell, who lives in Nashville, really connected to the country music scene, but also a um, food critic. He knows like so much. Like he's he knows everyone is doing anything in the restaurant industry, uh, in in Nashville. Great guy. And uh, I said, Hey, Daniel, I'm thinking of a hobby. Tell me about smoking meat. Huh. And this is like five five six years ago. And he talks me through every system. Talks about the big green egg and <laughs> talks about all this other Traeger the pellets. And he says, You know what? What I would suggest you do is. There's a great veteran-owned smoker being released called the Pit Barrel Cooker, and um, it's it's an 18 and a half gallon barrel, and uh, he says it's just it's fantastic. If I was to start, that's where I would start. So I went home, ordered a Pit Barrel Cooker, and uh, it was fantastic. You know, I started smoking, and you know, I don't know how many people before COVID. Y'all used to have through the house, but we were always having people through the house. Mm. And so catering for that kind of stuff, you know, what do you do? And and so I just started smoking for these people coming in. And then friends of mine would bring their meat over and ask me to smoke it for them. And then they got lazy and started to say, <laughs> hey, you source the meat um, and we'll buy it from you. Uh, and so in 2018, uh, I started looking into what would it look like to turn this into a small business. Oh, wow. Started reading stuff like accounting for dummies, and <laughs> and it's, I just find it really refreshing. Yeah, I know that when I start a brisket at four in the morning, by the end of the day, I'll have something to show for it. Mm -hmm. And it, it, anyway, so it's just it's fun. <laughs> you remind me, uh, if my neighbor is listening to this, thank you for all of the uh, smoking of the chicken and the meat that you do for us. But uh, I'm the I'm the lazy neighbor who's like. <laughs> So, uh, are you going to be smoking anytime soon? Because I've got some stuff for you here. No, he's always offering if I have anything, and I take it over. And Oh, I love that. That is a talent. That is a skill. That is an art that I wish I possessed. But unfortunately, I just leech off of people like my neighbor and my brother-in-law. But I'm glad they're people like you because it helps people <laughs> like like me. <laughs> yeah, because that's what he always asks me. My neighbor's always asking me, 
So tell me if that's too dry or tell me if, like, basically critique it. Yeah. Because they're learning, you know, you guys are probably learning as you go. And I give honest feedback. It is always excellent, Robert. Um, so wait, while you were talking there, though, I picked up your use of the word y'all, which someone from Canada, probably that's not in the vernacular up there. Do you remember the first time you ever used that word? And did it, st- did it stun you when you heard it uh, coming out of your mouth? No, no, I think you're absolutely right. It is. I, I was a quick ad, um, adopter of the word. And uh, my old boss, uh, Philip Jones, who hired me at All Saints Dallas, he's, um, he's from Dallas, born and raised, and, but he has got the best Texan accent. And the way he said y'all and then taught me that the plural of y'all is all y'all, Ooh. it's it's just so economical. Yeah, that's right. Y'all, all y'all. Yes. Okay. Sorry. And it's a good yep. catch because y'all works for men and women. Yeah, you all. Yeah. And can we can we establish this? Anybody listening that isn't familiar enough with the word to to know how to properly spell it, and I hope that you and I are on the same page here. The apostrophe goes between the Y and the A L L because it contracts you all. That's right. You don't. It's not. Wherever people are putting it, other than after the Y, it's wrong. You know, that's right. And, you know, even, uh, you know, I think it's the texting that's done it. Because I, I don't know mm. if my thumbs keep up or are accurate enough to put that apostrophe where it ought to go. But you're right. I see. You I agree with a, that statement. you yeah. got to have a talk with your phone's dictionary. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's the issue there. Back to our chat with Pastor David Larley in just a moment. But first, let's talk about a woman named Margaret and how her story may be similar to your story, which could end up in you being pain-free like her. See, she was a Tai Chi instructor. She'd been one for years, but now in her 60s, her knees were getting worse and worse over time. And finally, it got to the point where she had to stop leading her class. The pain was just too much. And then she began using Dr. Monroe's pain cream. And within seven days, using the cream twice a day, she was back to leading her class. Get your life back please head over to drmonroescbd.com. And when you do just that, you're going to be assisting the Child Help Organization. Get your life back. Please head over to drmonroescbd.com. And when you make a purchase there, you're going to be assisting the Child Help Organization. See, one of the hidden dangers of the quarantines and the lockdowns has been the toll taken on abused and neglected children. With kids being out of school, teachers and staff, they've been unable to help detect abuse in the home, and consequently, in many cases, these children have been locked up with their abusers. Child Help has assisted 11.5 million children through their programs. They have a staff of licensed clinical professionals manning their child abuse hotline, and unfortunately, due to COVID-19 limitations, fundraising efforts have fallen short of expectations over the past year and a half, and they're in need of your help. And that's where Dr. Monroe comes in. 20% of your purchase will go to the Child Help Organization. Head over to DrMonroe'sCBD.com and help a child while you help yourself get pain-free. That's DrMonroe'sCBD.com. Did you, I don't want to be presumptuous, but you brought something in. I uh, did. I mean, I mean let's not. Uh, right. Well, I was going to bring you a t-shirt, okay. but uh, <laughs> I was I was gonna. I was trying to think about what I could smoke and bring you in, and I just ran out of time. Uh-huh. So rain check on the okay. uh, the meat platter yeah, that we'll, was going to we'll, come in. We'll get that when we go curling. When we go, yeah, that's right. We'll okay. we'll, we'll do all the meats. Um, <laughs> but I did bring you something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm excited. All right. 
He's uh, reaching for a, a... Oh, cool. Thank you. Ha! I love hats, man. I don't know if you know this, but... Uh, I, I did. I took a guess. Yes, uh, my this wife, is really good looking, man. Rachel looked at the t-shirts I had and then looked at the hats and said, I think the hat's higher quality. Oh. So there you go. So where can people buy your stuff then? Well, I don't sell them just yet. I okay. kind of give them... You know, we're using when someone comes in and buys a big order, they'll get a little bit of swag. Okay. And uh, I also have some stickers. I don't even. Do you have a sticker guy? I mean, my kids. Yeah, and I've got I some. Uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah. There's the logo. See, All and right. just for the record, here I'll yeah, fling it over here. Oh, almost. Yeah, so wait, where do people go to get your stuff, man? Smokedmaple.net. Okay. I love this. You got the. He's got the Texas Lone Star above the maple leaf. Uh, above the, ma I've never seen those two logos together. Well, that's it, and that's, that's great. And it reflects a good friend of mine, Tim Hudson, did it <laughs> at, down at the Belmont Ice House in Deep Ellum, and he says, you know, it's really reflects your story. Yeah, Canadian. So did you to come Texas. up with that company name? I did. That's a great. I mean, that is genius, man. Because what we do is we glaze the meat halfway through the cook with maple syrup. I'm, and and I think you know it's it's this is cool, it's dude. pretty emotional. Smokedmaple.net. That's it. All right, y'all check that out. I'm I know I'm going. This that's pretty cool. Um, my goodness, now I'm now I'm hungry. Like it's getting close to lunchtime as we're recording this. I should have saved that chat for the end of the podcast, but no, no. And I've got a late lunch today, which yeah, makes it even they're worse. They're the worst. <laughs> right? Okay. I got to talk to you about Yacht Rock Radio. <laughs> the reason being is there was a recent episode of At The Mic. Kate Hyde was my guest, and she mentioned Yacht Rock Radio. It was new to me then. Now it's come up again here. What, what am I missing out on with Yacht Rock Radio? You know... It, Yacht Rock Radio. It's a station, I think, on well, a playlist. It's, it's on Sirius, right? Yeah, Sirius XM. I just never noticed it. You know, and it rotates into the main stations seasonally. And it's it's just like the, um, it's like, uh, what is it, pop rock from the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. You know, like Hall & Oates. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Kenny Loggins. You know, all that great stuff. And, you know, during COVID, I'd listen to that and put it on. And immediately, I was on a beach in Florida, just in my mind, watching <laughs> the water go by at a dive bar, so, and I was happy. Yeah, yeah. So is uh, Jimmy Buffett a staple of Yacht Rock Radio? I or, think so, no? yeah. yeah. Okay, I, I can get into this. I'll check it out. It works. I still need to go and listen to that channel. Um, okay, let's see here. Five possessions. If yeah. you just keep five possessions. I, I, I mean, green card, one of them. Passport, another. Um, tell me about the watch and the knife. Are these specific watch, a watch and a knife or just in general? Just in general. Okay. Okay. Just making sure there wasn't some yeah. historical story or something with something. Cause you want to know what time it is Yeah. When, when you're, when you're stranded on an Island or whatever, I should be more specific with this question, <laughs> you know, like, uh, cause if I, if I said stranded on an Island and you only had five possessions, That'd be a different answer. That would be. But I think a knife would probably be on there, huh? I probably wouldn't need my passport if no. I'm staying on it. Right, right. I got to <laughs> fix this question. Uh, journal and a pen. Do you write down, do you find yourself writing down a lot of thoughts? Um, I do. Um, it just kind of, yeah, I try to journal just to get stuff out. Does that exercise help you in writing sermons? Um, like, do you ever find 
one exercise drifting into the other where you're like, oh, I could use that over here too. Or- yeah, I, yeah, I think so all the time. But it also just um, helps me. It's almost like clearing out the RAM of your computer, you know, just kind of get, like you use That's Post-it good. notes, right? You just kind of capture the thought, put it down, and it leaves the uh, Yeah, I've leaves got a problem, mind. though. I mean, hey, are you, you should get a sponsorship by 3M or something. And they you just... are a genius. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I I burn through the post-it notes as I have uh, been relating in my own life lately. 20 years ago, I watched a movie, Memento. The guy can't remember anything. It. Oh, yeah, He's yeah, like, I've seen it, yeah. Okay. He's got all these post-it notes all over his body and stuff, you know, and notes written on it. Anyway, so there you go. That's... uh. That's me. Yay. It's fun. It's fun for getting everything. I love your who would you go back in history to meet answer because I don't think this guy gets enough credit in history. Ernest Shackleton, the explorer. Oh, yeah. Tell us some, tell us some stuff about why people need to know who Ernest Shackleton was. or just Like I said, I think he's one of those underrated personalities from history. You know, I think what draws me, I just, I love reading uh, biographies of the old school explorers. Mm-hmm. They had a plan, but as history tells us, no plan survives first point of contact, right? <laughs> I like it. And, um, and I remember reading my first biography of, of Shackleton in the summer. It was hot. And, you know, they set out to the South Pole and uh, I was just, I just remember being cold the whole time. And it's you know, <laughs> like, why am I so cold? And it's so hot outside. Ah, it's a, so and I'm a, not even in Texas where the AC's on, right? Safety tip. Uh, read about Ernest Shackleton in the summer. Yes. <laughs> yeah, not during the ice apocalypse yeah, of true. Texas. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And I think what struck me is he, they, you know, they raised money for this expedition they put everything together. They get the boat. They get all the stuff. And then the boat gets stuck in ice, right? They get shipwrecked. And he doesn't even, according to the memoirs and everything, he doesn't even think about it. He pivots. Mm-hmm. And the mission is no longer South Pole. It's get everyone home safe. Yeah. And he does. And it's, you know, and it's just uh, hardship after hardship they hit. And there's just, he's just so resilient and has this mental toughness that to me is just so compelling. I love to just sit down and, hey, just what was going through your mind, you know, when you're trying to get east to Easter Island <laughs> or, you know, okay, we're at Easter Island, but we're on the wrong side. So we got to go over the mountains. You know, it's just, this guy can't get a break. What I like and what I'm kind of excited to see, and I guess we won't see it now for, I don't know, 15, 20 years, maybe sooner, is, you know, Shackleton and, you know, they were forged in crisis. You know, they were really, they had it all there, but the crisis is what kind of was the catalyst that turned them into the heroic leaders that the people around them needed. And so, you know, COVID-19, um, everything we've gone through in this last year has been one kind of, some ways you could say, one crisis after another. Yeah. And, you know, to be looking for those people who, for that, that's been like a catalytic experience where they've actually been forged in it and start to see some of that, those heroic qualities come out. I think it's an exciting way to look at it. Well, let me ask you this. 
someone like me that just knows bits and pieces of his life, is there one particular book or anything that comes to mind that, that you would suggest or? Well, I, I read, so the, the one I read most recently is, is a book actually called Forged in Crisis. Okay. And it looks at five different leaders. One, the other one's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Oh yeah. You know, some, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll be honest. I stopped reading after the Shackleton bit. So I think the rest of the book is good. Well, but let's be honest here. And, and I can't tell you how many books that I start that I just don't finish or I skip around and I'm like, I want to know about this part of this person's life. And, you know, I, there's just not enough time in the day to read all of the stuff that I want to. And we're constantly being pulled in. Look at the post-it notes, 12 different directions every day. It's really tough to read. That's why audiobooks, oh. podcasts such as this one at the mic uh, are helpful because you can multitask. Yeah, and if you need to, you can play it at twice speed. Well, <laughs> or half speed. I mean, you could, but I don't know that you want to hear me on helium. Well, <laughs> or me for that matter. <laughs> no, that's good, man. I, I like uh, I like the Ernest Shackleton stuff. Earliest memory was on Boxing Day. Let's talk about that word, Boxing oh, Day. Oh, yeah. I mean, what is this? I mean, it's, it's December 26th, right? That's Every right. year because, you know, if you get a calendar, like right now, I'm looking at a calendar. Thank you, uh, Donna Coolyard. She sends me a uh, listener. Is that of, Ronald Reagan? Yeah, she sends me. She lives uh, out in California right near the Reagan Library. And every year, um, the sweet Donna Coolyard, um, who listens to The Blaze, watches The Blaze, she sends me the Reagan calendar from the library there. So I'm looking at the 2021 calendar. I'm going to go to uh, December. Yeah. And I have not checked this ahead of time. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, wait. All right. Now I've got to call the Reagan library. Because on December 26th, it doesn't say Boxing Day Canada like every calendar in my <laughs> life. It's... It says Kwanzaa begins. Uh, what, wow. What is okay? Anyway, I'm familiar with Boxing Day in Canada, just being that it's the day after Christmas. Is it just like Christmas or what? We what's up with you Canadians? Do you not celebrate Christmas too? What's going on? Oh, no, no, we celebrate Christmas, but I think we like to, you know, the uh, the origin <laughs> of Boxing Day. It's actually a hang up from you know being a British colony, right? Oh, okay. So on the 26th, the word Boxing Day is he would box up stuff and yeah. take it to you know give alms to the poor okay and so it, it I, so that's where it ties up to you so in the town i grew up in um this lovely couple of the mccrays would hold a uh, boxing day party or levy and uh, i guess which is the scottish version and um I, I think it was two or three or something anyway and they had these two poodles now i know you're a dog lover and a pet lover <laughs> Um, I am. I don't know that I'm a poodle lover, well, but do tell. They, they, anyway, <laughs> my earliest memory is coming out of their the room where all the coats were. Okay. And um, this poodle oh, no. is attached. It like bit through the the second knuckle of my finger. What were you? What happened? What apparently was... I was poking the poodle, but I, I I've blocked that that out, and it just bit me. And so I walk into oh. the middle of the party with this dog attached to my finger. And how old and, were you again? Um, I don't know, two or three. But, okay. And, uh, you know, obviously the poodle's covered in blood and blood gets on the carpet. <laughs> it was a short end of that party, but yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. But here's the crazy thing. We have, as a family, been talking about getting not a poodle, but a double doodle. 
which is a I guess a breed of poodle because they don't shed. So I don't know. Maybe it's a redemptive thread going through oh. our life, but we haven't done it yet, um, and uh, we'll see if a puppy's on the horizon. Oh, well, good luck. Thanks. Uh, I'd recommend a Chihuahua Beagle, a Cheagle. A Cheagle? And I got one of those, and then I got another dog that's kind of like everything. He's just a he's just a whole bunch of he's a mutt. Yeah. But he's a well-behaved mutt. Tanner is. So hold on, let's. I gotta revisit Boxing Day for a second. Yeah, let's go. So you get a bunch of new stuff on Christmas. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of hip, new, brand new, shiny stuff that, that you think is pretty cool. Yeah. And then you're like, well, now I've got this. I can take all of my old stuff and, and give it to the poor, right? Is that is that what they're doing up in Canada? They're basically taking old stuff that's out in the garage. That, all right, now that I got this new tool set, now I can get rid of this junkie set to the poor people, right? Yeah, well, I think that's <laughs> called upcycling. Aha, there it is. Nice job. Nice but spin. no, I don't think that happens anymore. I think more it's, so all the uh, stores are closed. Okay. On, on Christmas and Boxing Day? That's right. Well, yes, that's right. So it's a two-day. So if you live near the border, you drive to the U.S. to go shopping. <laughs> <laughs> We've done that. Uh, but it's more, it's become really a family day, okay. which is, you know, cool. a lot of fun. So it's an extra day off that everyone gets. Lounge around, play with the new toys. That's stuff. it. Okay. Go skiing, whatever. Tell us about Martin and Joe Kingston. Oh, they are amazing. Uh, they are dear friends of ours. It's a wild story uh, in the sense that we met them because at our church in London, their daughter and daughter's husband were coming, were members. And um, Joe, who is uh, the daughter, married a Zimbabwean named Ian Connolly. Okay. And we became uh, quick friends. He's like six foot 12. You know, he's like really, I don't know if that is even a measure, like seven foot. He's I was, tall. I was going to say, I think six foot 12 is seven foot, but I'm not good yeah, at well, math. He's maybe so not seven foot, but he, he's a dear friend. <laughs> he's and a would, tall guy. Yeah. And we would meet up and pray together on Thursday mornings. Uh-huh. And uh, we got talking because my, I didn't know this at the time, but in my mother's side of the family, we've got priests that go back through the generations to pre-colonial time, right? So all the way nice. back. And uh, my mother's uncle was a missionary in Rhodesia during the War of Independence. And uh, he lived in a rail car and traveled up and down and essentially did funerals uh, as the war went on. Anyway, so as Ian and I are meeting, um, he, uh, we start talking about Zimbabwe, and we realize that his family sponsored the mission that brought my great uncle over to Zimbabwe. So like his family and my family knew each other wow. two generations ago. And now all of a sudden here we are praying together in, in London. Oh, cool. And uh, so Martin and Jill, um, we got to know them. And then they, um, I don't know, you know, it was a different time. I was younger. I loved to work. I didn't realize things were necessarily I didn't have an up-to-date picture of myself, you know, which often young people, I feel, don't. <laughs> and um, a couple of things happened. It's about 14 years ago. Rachel's father was diagnosed with vascular dementia. <sighs> and, um, and at the same time, the ministry in the church starts taking off. And I just, I would do it so differently now. What I should have done is taken a leave of absence from the church and supported Rachel was having to go down she was head of a, a school at the time so huge pressure on her shoulders 
and t- going down to see her parents as much as she could and, and going through that. And anyone who's ever had a loved one go through dementia or even vascular dementia, you kind of lose them in intervals, right? So though he died, when he died, the losing of him had happened sooner. And I had seen that as a distraction and I really wasn't there for, I didn't support Rachel the way that, you know, you should. Mm-hmm. And instead I poured myself into, um, into work and um, all of a sudden, you know, her father dies and I, I'm on the couch. Marriage is just kind of, um, you know, it's, it's just in a really tough spot. And then um, Martin and Jill invite us to their house for a weekend. And he is one of the top, I think he's retired now. Uh, he was one of the top lawyers in, in, in London. And so it was the best thing. That, that, to that weekend was amazing because he basically cross-examined me for the whole weekend. Did you know going in that this was going to be kind of a... You know, I was so desperate to make it work. I was up for anything. Okay. And then, you know, we left, you know, in separate rooms. They did this counseling with us, this ministry with us. And we left having renewed our marriage vows and, you know, things were just fantastic. And, and Jill and Mark, we still, you know, we touch base with them regularly. Um, he has, um, after that, for the rest of the time we're in London, which I want to say is about um, five years, we would meet up once a month, once every two months. And he'd mm. say, look, I'll take you to a great place to eat. And my job isn't to make you feel good about yourself. It's to make sure you're in touch with reality. Mm. And he would just ask me questions like, um, do you support Rachel right now? So this is like months after. I said, yeah, 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 I do, of course. And he would say, how? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, it says, are you pouring your gifts into her first or is she getting the leftovers? Oh. Uh-huh. And, you know, those kind of reality checks, which. Did you ever say no follow-ups? Come on. <laughs> yeah, <Stop>. that's right. <laughs> no, there was no way out. But yeah. it, and it just was so helpful. And uh, really helped me kind of hit that place yeah. of finding the balance between um, life and, and pastoral work and just terrific. And, and Jill's been a mentor to Rachel. And, you know, I look back on those cu- on that couple and I say, you know, they were definitely their voice in our lives. I w- without it, I wouldn't be where I am. Wow. And there are others, obviously, but certainly it's kind of also led now that one of the things that Rachel and I happened to to do is you know have a i would say maybe a a place where we do talk to couples and and help them and and, and walk only because we've been to the brink and back and know what it's like you also mentioned you had the thought at the time that maybe you would cancel the lunch with that bishop isn't it amazing how what seem to be innocuous decisions at the time can end up butterfly effect yeah being so important and pivotal in our lives absolutely that's i think that's fascinating and you and you wonder how much you know i would say that was you know obviously as a priest i would say that that's the lord's leading right and there are these moments he sets up that that can be we talk about time not just in kind of the measure of time but there are also these ideas of it's a, a kairos moment where um I would bring in a word that isn't used much today, destiny, where it kind of mm. like can really take a different course. And, may, you know, 
So what do you think about that? I mean, I hate to put you on the spot here, but you want to do some destiny talk or everything happens for a reason uh, theory or, um, I'm, you, you know, know, what do you think about like, does everything happen for a reason? Do you think, or I don't know. I think there's enough. No one's actually ever asked me that. I realize my own theory um, is that things do happen and you know, I one of the great joys of my life in London is I worked with ex-offenders. They're coming out of prison. And, you know, when chaos, when things get chaotic, I think things can just happen. Mm. My bigger belief isn't that, you know, does everything happen for a reason? I don't know. But I do believe that there is someone who can redeem everything that happens. And to me, the redemption piece is is, is much bigger. And I have a much bigger faith in that ability that it, nothing there is nothing, my conviction is, there's nothing that can't be redeemed. Now, there are consequences. Often, you know, if we make bad choices, we have to face. But after we've faced them, what does the rest look like? And that's where I think, you know, the role of community, of, of uh, just having someone to talk to is so important, especially today. Um, just someone that will listen. So that, that's my take. I don't know, hmm. you know, it might be a bit different, but that's what I think. Sure. Is, okay. I want to transition from the heavy talk about destiny and and those uh, pivotal moments in your life to your most embarrassing moment. Take us to Southwest London. Yeah. And uh, and and your uh, situation there uh, with the uh, with the funeral. The funeral. Oh story. my goodness! I was wondering. <laughs> there are a number of them actually. <laughs> Um, I've got two. I got one that I thought of since then, but yeah. So we're doing this funeral, and um, one. Hold on, the, hold on, time out. I'm sorry. So you you've added added one I, 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 since this email because yeah. it wasn't that long ago. You replied I know, I know. to this email. I'll, I'll give you the one I think you're okay. looking for. So we have so we have several. To, you if cover you want all a bonus. of them. Yes, please, all of them. Go for it. <laughs> um, I'm taking this funeral, and one of the market stall vendors on the high street had died. Of cancer, and you know he was um, very popular and well loved. I don't know, but you know. Anyway, so I'm there. I meet the family, his wife and the kids, who are all grown. So you know he died in his 80s, and um, they were huge Elvis fans. And in that time, I had sideburns, and <laughs> oh, no. and they kind of loved that I looked a bit like Elvis, which oh. I was never sure about. <laughs> um, anyway, and they ask. The big thing is the majority of the funerals in the UK that I did were all crem- uh, cremations. Okay. And so when you roll up the cre- crematorium, there's a chapel. You do the chapel service. And uh, usually there's music you walk into, either live or recorded. And then at the end, after you put the body to rest, you press one or two buttons. First button, uh, the curtain closes. Second button indicates to the attendant that the service is over. Cue the music. We're done. We're on our way out. Mm-hmm. They'd requested a recording on the way in of Elvis singing Amazing Grace from his hymn album. Right. And on the way out, they requested him singing Abide With Me. Uh, totally fine, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> really happy. And we got through the service. <laughs> and um, when things go wrong, you have to make a decision. You know, do you try to correct it or do you just play it straight? Right. right? And you got to make that decision yeah, and this is a mixed crowd. I'm looking out, and you know, some are grieving, others are not grieving. You wonder, well, why are you here? 
And uh, all of a sudden, the attendant gets it wrong. The post-it note fail, actually. Mm. And uh, I don't know if you've <laughs> ever had, you probably have never had one like this. Okay. And instead of playing track three oh, no, on no. a different CD, he plays track four. And the attendant was an avid Elvis fan as well. So I wonder if he actually swapped up the CDs. A miscue happens. So I press the button. And instead of abide with me, on comes Elvis singing, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. And what I have to do next is I've got to walk in front of the coffin, you know, do a nod of respect to the coffin, and then go to the exit and wait to greet the principal mourners. And I'm thinking, do I run back and change it? Or do I just play it as is? What do I do? And I said, I'll just play it. I just played it as is. You did, huh? So I go. And I'm thinking, this is going to be interesting. I'm going to hear about this. And I nod to the coffin. You oh, know, no. it goes, the curtain closes. I walk out. And then out comes oh, no. the widow. And she says, I'm pretty sure we requested abide with me. But I tell you, Father. She had a bit of an Irish accent. So she was like, I tell you, Father. He was a hound dog his whole life. <laughs> oh. So what a great way to send him off. That is, and uh, anyway, everybody came out and said, well done, well done. You know, <laughs> so I got, I just got, just about got away with it. Ooh, could have been worse. Man. Could have been a little less conversation or something. Yeah. Playing. I mean, you know. Yeah, it could have, you know, there's a lot of ways that could have gone. So. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I'm glad you had a sense of humor, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, is okay. You had a couple more embarrassing oh, stories man. here. Well, what's the what, what's the other one from back then? That- oh, so we we ran. Um, as I said, we had a prison in our parish, which meant that we had access. You know, put the collar on in England. It's like your gold card to go wherever. Mm. And so we were um, guys. We would visit guys in, in in the prison and just do some some work with them. And then when they were released, they wanted to be resettled in the area to be with the people that introduced them to Jesus. And so, um, but the Sunday services were just too big for them. So we started a midweek service um, called Church on Wednesday that they called Cow, you know. And, and uh, it was <laughs> really, we, we fed them lunch uh-huh. first, and then we had a worship service. And, you know, there's anywhere from 30 to 40 people. Well, all of a sudden, you know, we moved from having ex-offenders coming to the homeless start coming to everyone on the margin starts coming. And we had this one guy whose name was Arthur, who, you know, he'd never come to church, but he was, everybody knew him because he would drive around on a 10-speed bike. Um, He had long gray hair, um, and he'd wear high heels, a mini skirt, and a bodice. And, um, you know, so that's, and people Uh would like hurl insults at him, all that kind of Uh stuff. Anyway, this one day. He was unique. He was unique. (laughs) He shows up and, uh, you know, sometimes I get talking before I, I really know what I'm, I'm saying. And he shows up and I say, Arthur, so great you're here. We're about to have lunch. It's going to be bangers and mash, you know, sausage and potatoes. And um, it's not quite ready yet. The cooks are still working on it. So why don't you go grab, plop yourself down on the sofa, have a cup of tea and, um, you know, lunch will be ready soon. And, um, you know, it's great. We had two rules at Cal that everyone was welcome and we treated everyone normally. Okay. okay so, you know, it's just one of those things. Anyway, shortly after that, Joyce, who's kind of the matriarch, she was like in her 80s and um, she kind of ruled everything, right? So she comes up and she says, Oi, Vicar, I thought we was having sausages for lunch and they're not meant to be on display. 
I'm like, Joyce, what are you talking about? And she points over to Arthur, oh. and Arthur had suffered a colossal um, wardrobe malfunction oh, when no. he jumped onto the sofa, and I realized there's nobody <sighs> here but me to talk to him. And so everyone's, oh. you know, to just to protect his dignity, I just kind of rush over, and I say, <laughs> Arthur, um, it's come to my attention that you might just need to adjust your 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 wardrobe. Mm-hmm. And so um, I tell you what, I'll lay out the options for you. The men's rooms to my left. Oh, no. The ladies' rooms to the right. And the disabled bathrooms upstairs. I'm not saying you've got a disability. I'm just telling you what your options are. <laughs> Personally, I wouldn't go to the women's bathroom because that's where Joyce is. And I think she just needs some time. So why don't we just go to the men's room? We can get you off and get you back out here for lunch. And so, you know, and everyone's like, wow, oh. that was amazing. But you know what was amazing? I sat down. The real thing is I, what was amazing is I sat down with Arthur and had lunch with him. Because that was where the gold was, was, you know, as you say here, uh, everyone has a story. Sure. And so I started talking to Arthur. I said, Arthur, you know, why do you do it? Why do you dress this way? And I said, you know, my wife says you got the best legs in Southwest London. <laughs> but why do you dress this way? He said, um, I was the smartest kid in school, in elementary, and people hated me. I was, I did, I had the best um, grades in uh, high school, and college, and everyone hated me. I went to Oxford. I got a degree at Oxford, top of my class. Everyone hated me. Um, and so now I dress this way, and I know why people hate me. And I was just, I mean, I, I just started to cry because I was like, oh, my word. Like, here is someone who has just had a life of pain mm-hmm. that has led him to do this so that he can understand why he's not liked. And anyway, I just, just sat with oh. him. I listened to him, and I just said, well, Arthur, you're always welcome here, and we don't hate you, and you'll never be insulted when you come here. So he came a couple of times, and then I think he moved out of the neighborhood. But, you know, that is always stay. It started off embarrassingly, but you just kind of, by listening, you just kind of get a little glimpse of what's going on on behind the scenes. I will say that when you replied to the email... I did a double take when uh, I saw under the question, like, what are some other jobs that you have held? And you did this on purpose. I did. Of course you did. Shock and awe. I worked as a stripper at a resort one summer in the housekeeping department. Okay, all right. (laughs) You'd go room to room, strip the sheets. But yeah, you had me for a minute there. I thought, now wait a second. What? This doesn't add up. Did you want to discuss that job or did you just want that in there for shock effect no so you know <laughs> actually so that was a summer i want to say 99 1999 it was a great summer um in that i worked primarily as the bellhop at this resort fairmont property at the time and um they're always you'd always pick up extra shifts and so i would pick up shifts and get paid overtime in the housekeeping department. And, you know, the, the, it was run by these two matriarchs. And they would say, oh, yeah, all right, you can be my uh, our stripper. And I looked at them and said, ladies, <laughs> God has not given me a body that anyone would want to see me strip. <laughs> um, but, you know, they said, no, no, strip the sheets. So I'd go through and I'd strip the sheets, get them ready for the, you know, housekeeping attendants to come uh-huh. through. But, you know, they ran that department so well yeah. that they trained the staff that they didn't just they weren't to be housekeeping for um, the rest of their lives, but that they could run the department. So it was a really kind of empowering oh, cool. thing. And, and you just kind of saw um, they taught you how to work hard and fast 
so that you could always be moving on to the next thing, but do it in a way where you weren't stepping on people in front of you. Mm-hmm. And so it was just it was just a really great experience. Did that help you later on as the pastor of a church? Um, any lessons there that that you applied? You think, or just maybe subconsciously you picked up? You know, I would say because it's not easy running a church, is it not? I mean, it's not. It's. I mean, it seems like. It's more difficult to run a church than a business sometimes uh, for for multiple reasons. But I think primarily, correct me if I'm wrong, because your perspective is different than mine, is not only are you, quote, in charge of your church, but you're also trying to run it in a manner that doesn't step on anybody's toes. So I just wonder, from your experience, if you can answer this, in a way that won't get you in trouble with your flock. How is that running a church and being the guy that everybody looks to at the end of the day, like, all right, so what do we do? You know, I think... And that, still tr- still trying to smile yeah. all the while and, and share the love of Jesus. <laughs> you know, the thing I, I think I took away from my early work experience there is the idea of empowerment. All kinds of different ways that people approach church. They want you to do something for them or... The uh, Philip Jones, who I worked for at All Saints, was great at this. He would always say, you know, I just want to open holes for people to run in. And so what he taught me to do is someone would come with a great idea and, and, you know, you respond and say, great, what can I do to help you do that? And just kind of spin it around and realize that people, you know, uh, could dream big and and run after those. And the other thing, too, is is that... um, Working with ex-offenders in that group that I talked about at church on Wednesday taught me that you can be gracious and firm, and um, you can be loving and have conflict. Hmm. And conflict, a disagreement, or trying to aim for clean conflict, uh, where you know, in, from my perspective, I wouldn't. You're trying to work out a conflict without sinning, right? Without kind of acting in a way that you shouldn't, being professional. Um, can actually lead you to uh, a better result. So often I would find the people I would butt heads with the most at church were people who are wired like me, <laughs> uh. right? And so like, why am I, you know, why is it so hard? It's like, oh, okay, so we're kind of wired the same way. That's probably why that's happening. And so just trying to find a way to release people into things um, that would just help them with purpose. And, and, and there is certainly a level of diplomacy that's needed when you're running an organization where, you know, if you're running a factory, if someone isn't performing, just fire them. Mm-hmm. But as you're absolutely right. In a church, you can't, mm-hmm. you can't do that. Yeah. And so the, the ability to cast vision and connect what people are looking to do with the overall vision of what we're trying to do in the parish becomes the key point. Would you agree that the state of the church in general was unhealthy a year ago before COVID. And after you answer that one, depending on how you answer it, how is it now a year into mandates and lockdowns and remote worship and and, and that kind of thing? From your perspective as a pastor, tell us, the evolution of the church just in the last year, really. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, I'll say I come from, you know, in Canada and the UK, 
the mega church is a, is a, is a phenomenon that doesn't exist there. So I don't feel like I could comment on a church, you know, of any degree of size. But certainly for us, when COVID hit, I was—I want to say three or four years ago, the church where I served previously at All Saints Dallas, we had just bought a 1920s car dealership a block south uh, from City Hall and a block away from the Bridge Homeless Recovery Center in downtown Dallas. And we got our church to move from Oaklawn across 75 to downtown. And we went through the whole process with a great team of retrofitting this concrete car dealership into a worship center. And so... Um, and this is St. Bart's... This is All Saints Dallas. All Saints. Yeah. Where but I am now is St. Bart's. You're at St. Bart's now. In East so if people want to find your church online, tell me if this is incorrect. Saint, just this is how it's the, the yeah. URL appears to be ST, BartsDallas.org. That's it. Okay, cool. So that's where people can find you currently. Continue. Yeah. Uh-huh. COVID has, and the way that everybody had to respond with such little information mm-hmm. early on, and the people who do it well, who've made their careers of, like you in, in, in media, of helping a church go digital, will say that usually it's about a nine to 12 month process. Well, all of a sudden, the church world had to pivot and in seven days do it, right? We were packing for a ski trip to New Hampshire, Mm. found out that the ski hill had shut down, and, you know, so we stayed home and then threw everything into, let's move this to an online experience. Um, I would say what we learned uh, is to think local, local, local. Um, and that Sunday, uh, the three boys, Rachel and I, sat down to do church at home. And we just started, we didn't really, we'd, we've been living at a current address in East Dallas for five years. And we didn't really know that many of our neighbors, we knew one or two. But the boy, Rachel and the boys, you know, they came, it wasn't my idea, they came up with the idea of leafleting all of the houses on our street and saying, we're about to enter in a potentially difficult time, and mm-hmm. we believe that if we band together, we can meet every challenge that we face. So this Sunday night, tonight it's 5 p.m., we're going to be in our front yard having a socially distant happy hour. All are welcome. Mm. And um, it was amazing. Everybody came out. Wow. Uh, we had our picnic table in the back. We moved to the front of the yard. Um, we just kind of turned our front yard to the back, and then um, every, we got to know everyone, and we did that for a year. Mm. Every Sunday, even in the extreme weather, we found ways to to do it, and we really got to know our neighbors. Like, real, like I couldn't imagine, like, we had investors call the house, say, can we buy uh, your house from you? I was like, no. And they're like, well, why not? Because I would have to leave my neighborhood. Wow. And, you know, I've really growing to love the neighbors. So the idea of thinking local, I think, has really come in to the 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 church thing and, and what does it mean to be a neighbor, you know, which has obviously been around for, since Jesus said it, you know, love your neighbor with all your, as you love yourself. Um, so the local thing has happened. And I think and that is so healthy. Yeah. That, I mean, I think everyone would agree that COVID itself has been a net negative on the world in you pick the category 
But I think this goes back to what you were saying earlier through chaos as far as look what good has come out of this. That would not have happened if not for COVID. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, it's a shame that it it took a global pandemic to do this. And we're all guilty of this. I mean, you know, of, of not taking advantage of what's right in front of us until we're faced with a crisis. And it's just really cool that, that you guys were able to turn that into something really positive for your community. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, knowing everyone's name is tough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the churches that I've been a part of, I've been able to know the majority people's names. And I think, you know, that's the, the balance is not just being able to know their names, but know some of their story. Because when you know that, oh, it's like what you're doing here. You get to know the story behind a person. You can understand a little bit more about why they might be like that. So was the church unhealthy beforehand? Um, I think, you know, as always, there's health, and then there's things we could do, uh, as a friend of mine says, more better, right? (laughs) Um, And there are obviously things that maybe we shouldn't have been doing. And I think the things that we shouldn't have been doing have all fallen away to the side because they weren't important. Mm -hmm. Whereas COVID helped... A lot of churches really look and see what are, you know, what are our core values? Let's bring those into alignment. Let's really lead, lead with that. So kind of like after 9-11, huh? Yeah. I mean, tragedy, but people want. It helps reset or Humans want to gather and they want to congregate. Um, Have you, last question on this COVID and church fallout stuff. The argument can be made that if you make something more accessible then people more people will take advantage of it so hey look um we now have online church so more people have that at their fingertips they could literally lay in bed on sunday morning as opposed to i don't like getting up and going in well now you've got the option you can stay home and you can watch online from your perspective, whether reflecting on your church or just what you've learned in general in the last year, would you say that more people are actually taking that to heart? Or has COVID and the breaking of the church habit, for lack of a better term, now that that's been broken, have people, for, again, lack of a better term, fallen away just completely? Or are they actually taking advantage of this technology that they said that they needed in the first place? I I think it's... Probably a both and. Okay. I mean, I always tell people, look, I'm not the, you know, you're spoiled for choice in, in the Metroplex for good churches. Yeah. And uh, I'm not, you know, I've never said I'm the best preacher. And now what we've realized through COVID is you can get the best content delivered to your screen. You can watch The Mandalorian and then a sermon and then, you know, whatever without even getting dressed. Um, <laughs> but the thing I think that, what the church does, and this is the challenge that we're all working through, uh, like families. Families suddenly through COVID got a lot of margin. Nobody was going to sports. They weren't taking their kids on Saturday to sports games. They weren't doing all this kind of stuff. They were just at home. And we don't really know um, if we'll ever get, how much we'll get back from families, mm-hmm. right? So what does the future of like Sunday school look like? Well, nobody knows because if I want the best class on X, I can get it on YouTube, right? Or you name it. What we do have is availability Mm -hmm. and that deeper need to connect. And so we, we started, I mean, at All Saints, we were encouraging people to come back to worship in person, following all the 
the social distancing guidelines, I want to say back in August, September. Um, and then, you know, same at St. Bart's, we're doing that. We're, we're doing our best. Um, and, and we'll see, you know, I think I, I know a number of people whose health concerns are such that they're probably, at least for even now, for the next little while, even having with the option of vaccination, are going to be worshiping remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, but that on its own isn't enough. You know, we got to come around and see how else we can connect and, and go along those lines. So before we go, the custom garage. Yes. Dream of yours. Yes. I'm telling you, this could have been written by my son as, as this. This is what you wrote. Uh, the custom garage is a dream. I love watching shows where people turn wrecks into hot rods or restore classics. There's something about hearing the roar of an engine that brings me to life. I mean, I got my son's got to come. He could help you put this thing together, I think. But uh, do you want kind of like a Jay Leno type uh, setup, or what? What are you? Uh, what are you hoping to accomplish at some point as this fun-sounding hobby here? Well, you know, I guess the intent is a way to connect. I mean, the thing about Smoke Maple. And, uh, you know, we'll do events, we'll show up pre-COVID, set up a pop-up uh, barbecue pit, and I'll talk to people all night. And people will tell me things, uh, just as I'm slicing sausage or whatever, that they probably wouldn't want <laughs> to tell a priest first off. And then I'll say, but you realize I'm a priest, right? And I think, you know, the one thing that I've learned um, is I've always believed that church has a key role to play. But being a small business owner... I see with new eyes now the role that small businesses have in the very fabric of community. So um, COVID hits. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have answers. I, I, like I couldn't hack calculus. So I don't understand the science. Um, I don't, but I do have access to barbecue. And so I was like, well, what can I do? Well, maybe if I bless someone with free barbecue, it'll help them keep bringing their best to the challenges they're facing. So literally the crazy thought, we talked about crazy thoughts being hinges that went through my mind was, uh, it was as if God was saying, hey, I've given you a barbecue business. I need to borrow it. And so um, we fed doctors and nurses at the local hospital in the COVID unit. Uh, George Floyd happens. I'm talking to the off-duty police who do the security at our church. They're demoralized, but they're the exact right police officers we need in the force. Mm. And without thinking, I say, hey, come by my place on Friday, and I'll give you 100 pounds of ribs. So we feed the, the night. And I didn't even know the date, but so July 4th, that night shift, ate 100 pounds of, barbe- of my barbecue. Mm-hmm. And it's in the photos of them in the lunchroom. And then just things just started to go. And so before I knew it, in the years we, we gave, and then I have friends, good people, who are going about the whole social justice thing the right way in South Dallas. Uh, I say to them, hey, you only barbecue? I'll send you 100 pounds of ribs. I've never seen a grumpy person eat ribs. <laughs> you know, it's something about, you know, a friend of mine says, we're trying to bring joy to the world one rib at a time. Uh-huh. Right? And and so what we see is, is small businesses have a place where they can build community in a way that that that, that is specific. So, That's you know, great. I think... Barbecue, the great unifier. Well, we ended up giving away two tons of barbecue in a year. So the custom car garage idea would be, this would be a great place to connect the community, provide jobs, and then just become a hub, you know, 
for culture. So that's cool, man. Keep and me updated involve on your that. son. Yeah, yeah. Keep me updated on on that progress. Uh, lots of places to find you. Instagram, Smoked yep. Maple. There's SmokedMaple.net. Yep. Greatest logo, by the way, ever. I just love it. Uh, on LinkedIn, Dave Larley, L-A-R-L-E-E. Uh, have we covered everything today, do you think? I think or? so. All right. Well, I appreciate you making time and coming down here, and, and it was great getting to know you today, man. Keith, this has been so much fun. When are we going to go curling? Hey, um, a week from next row of Tuesday. Wait. That's what my mother always said. She'd say... Anything you want, ask a week from next row of Tuesday and you'll get it. Next row Tuesday? Shrove Tuesday. Next row that's Tuesday. The, that's Mardi Gras. Oh, yes. Okay. Mardi Gras and yes. curling gets pretty heated, though. We probably want to start, you know, in the summer. Summer. Yeah. Summertime. Okay. Well, we'll do it. Maybe on Canada Day. Canada. July 1st. July 1st. Oh, Canada. I do have the uh, Canadian National Anthem memorized now after all the Oilers games that I watch. So um, It's a glorious thing. I love it. All right, man. Thanks so much, David Larley, Pastor David Larley. Thanks for making time on At The Mic, buddy. Anytime. Well, I hope you enjoyed getting to know Pastor David Larley. He's truly just a great guy. And uh, I still need to sample his barbecue from (laughs) smokedmaple.net. And uh, it's happening. And so is that curling. Just a reminder, if you get a chance to share this podcast with someone in your world um, this week, I would be so grateful. Your support and your sharing of this show is what makes it successful. So thank you very much. Next week, I sit down with a guy who used to run security for my boss, Glenn Beck, and now he's a book author. Spencer Corson, he's going to sit down with us next week, going to share some tips on how to keep yourself and those you love safe. It's a great conversation coming up with Spencer Corson here on At The Mic. That's next week. Until then, please go be free and thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemicshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect. Hey, did you know there's At The Mic Show merchandise now? Yeah, and it's currently at a big discount for a limited time. Head to atthemicshow.com, look for the shop button at the top of the page, or make it easier on yourself and head to atthemicshop.com. Com. Enter in code first time buy at checkout and you're going to get $5 off and free shipping on orders over $55. That's offer code first time buy at at the mic shop.com.